I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. From things like ribwort and dandelion, chickweed, there's so many weeds that cross over into a medicinal weed space. In today's show, how plants throughout the ages have been used in ways you might not expect. From some unusual modern-day uses for herbs, to alarming plant remedies from the history books. In fact, some of the earliest cultivated areas, cultivated gardens that we know of were created specifically to grow plants for medicines. Plus, we're exploring how the RHS is creating spaces to help people's mental well-being. Physical health, emotional well-being, mental well-being are all things that gardening is helping those conditions to be managed a lot better. Welcome to Gardening with the RHS. I'm Guy Barter. To start, we're hearing from broadcaster and writer James Wong on why he thinks houseplants are so helpful in welcoming people to gardening. So I have what can only really be described as an obsession with houseplants. People overuse the word obsession, but but I think with me it has it has definitely got out of hand. I live in a one-bedroom flat in central London, and just looking around, I have green covering every surface. So I recently counted up to 450 and then got bored of counting. So I'm going to assume, and I was... Definitely not at the end there. So I'm going to assume that 500 plus houseplants in every form you can have imaginable. I love houseplants for many reasons. I think one of the first reasons is because I physically don't have a garden. I would love to have acres to potter in, but I don't. And, you know, I'm almost 40 now. And I remember, you know, once upon a time when, when I was a student, I heard that the average home buying age is 36. And I thought, well, that's ancient. Um, <laughs> so I've gone way beyond that. And I still can't afford to buy a home. And I, I think I'm I'm part of part of a generation that's increasingly less able to be able to do that. Houseplants are a way that I can connect with nature that's personal to me. And what I think is particularly great about them is they've traditionally been considered sort of second cousin to proper horticulture. You know, proper horticulture is outdoors. And indoor horticulture is just really second fiddle. To me, it's superior in so many ways. Firstly, not everyone has a garden. Gardens are a luxury. They may not once have been, but now they definitely are. And secondly, it frees you up from the seasons. So in conventional gardening, there may be, you know, two months, three months, maybe even six months of the year where 
you can't garden as much as you want. But with houseplants, you can see things bursting into life and the miracle of nature unfolding in front of you literally whenever you want. And I also think, not necessarily for me, but I think for a lot of people, horticulture can come with lots of entry barriers if you're new to it. You know, it can be seem daunting. It can seem like it's filled with rules and, and if you break them, everything dies, you know. And I think for many people, it seems very elitist. Like you have to have a double barrel surname and, you know, be incredibly posh and wealthy. And there definitely a lot of the culture around horticulture is about that. It's being exclusive. It's being about old-fashioned nostalgia and words like heritage and Britishness. But I think with houseplants, none of that cultural baggage applies. So much of it was lost in the last 30 years that is now being regained through platforms like Instagram that people who are coming to it are so new that anyone can do it. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter your age. You don't even have to have a garden to be a gardener. One of the things that I think is fascinating about starting with gardening is so many people are traditionally filled with fear. My friend Fiona, she's an avid baker and she creates these things that like at Christmas, she'll create almost like a fully functioning gingerbread house with lights on the inside and window panes and you'd have to have a degree in engineering to create. And then she'll start with houseplants and she will just be filled with fear and have a million questions and be really uncertain about it. And I said to her like, have you ever burnt a cake? And she's like, yeah, of course, I've burnt loads. That's how you learn. And I was like, it's exactly the same with plants, except a cake doesn't try and claw its way out of the oven if it's about to burn. Whereas houseplants will do everything to try and save themselves. All you've got to do is give them the right environment. So the most important thing to know about not just houseplants, but I think all gardening and, and maybe life in general, is the only secret to a green thumb is persistence. And if something dies, well, I better get on with it so I can try something new. When it comes to sourcing plant material, uh, for houseplants, that's a little bit more tricky. You know, I get a lot of my stuff from internet auction sites. And the RHS Plant Finder is a great resource online that basically it's like a database. You type in a plant name and it will show you independent nurseries where you can get these things. So I have probably about 20 terrariums, each themed, because I'm a geeky botanist, by the natural habitat I'm trying to create. Uh, I have some uh, water features. I've got an, a number of fountains, all miniaturized. I don't have the luxury of having a plot to potter in. So I love the fact that at 10.30 on a February stormy night, I can potter around for three hours in a terrarium. So it's, it's gardening that's, that can be done anytime I want it to happen. If you want to describe terrariums in one line, because they can kind of be anything you want, it's growing plants in a sealed glass case. And the function of that sealed glass case is to create a stable, humid environment. It allows you to grow plants that you could never otherwise do in an open air setting in a living room.
One of the things I love about creating terrariums and creating these habitats is it's like you're escaping into a fantasy world, but instead of using a novel or a film or a video game to do that, it's like a dream. You're actually co-creating this reality. And I'm kind of immature and pop culture at heart, so a lot of the things that I do are inspired by things I've seen in films. So I have an avatar-themed tank where I've tried to use lots of plants that are iridescent blue. There are a range of plants that come from the rainforest that uh, produce these unusual structures called iridoplasts. And what they are designed to do is create this iridescent sheen, which helps them eke out the most of the light that hits the forest floor. Yeah, terrariums are so on vogue at the moment, but I think the most important thing is to pick those species that come from forest floors in tropical regions of the world. Uh, so things like ferns, orchids, and mosses. There are so many reasons why I'm excited about houseplants, but I, I think one of the fundamental ones is their therapeutic value. And it can sound quite airy-fairy to talk about plants and, you know, how good they make you feel and how you're connected with nature. And it can be very easy to dismiss that. But this isn't just anecdotal. There's really good evidence to suggest that being in nature can have a measurable impact on mental health. But the really fascinating thing about a lot of this research is it suggests you don't actually have to be physically out in nature, in a woodland or on the top of a mountain, for this to work. I live in central London in a tiny flat, but with a couple of cheaper window boxes, I can just create my own green view. And, you know, in the five minutes that I'm watering that one windowsill, it's the five minutes that I'm not freaking out about a headline or worried about trolls on Twitter. It's five minutes that I just get to slow down and connect with what's important. James Wong. The connection between plants and our health has been well known for centuries, with some of the earliest gardens created specifically to provide plants for culinary or healing purposes. Greek physician Dioscorides was a surgeon with the Roman army, and he started a list of known medicinal plants of the Roman Empire called Demateria Medica. As he travelled, he collected samples of local medicinal or useful herbs, many of which were previously unknown to Greek and Roman physicians. He documented over 1,000 recipes for medicines using over 600 plants, and his work became the leading herbal text for an incredible 16 centuries. In her role as Head of Libraries and Exhibitions, my fellow presenter, Fiona Davison, has put together a virtual exhibition on the subject called Healing Gardens. It opens firstly for RHS members next week, before opening to the public in August. She began by telling me about the origins of using plants for health purposes. The relationship between people and plants as medicine is as old as time, basically. It's where we went to, to find things that would heal us. It was the, the natural world around us. And so before the days when you could pop down to the chemists or the doctors, you'd look at the plants that were growing around you and try and work out whether they would help or not. And in fact, some of the earliest cultivated areas, cultivated gardens that we know of were created specifically to grow plants for medicines. The elements that they were looking at, are, you know, it's everything you can imagine. 
They may not have described the illnesses as we would have described them or understood how to cure them in the same way, but it's everything from the minor cuts and bruises, coughs and colds, right the way through to what we would now know as cancer or tuberculosis or really you know, life-threatening diseases. Whether it was something that was minor or major, the only place you had to look was the natural world and the plants and animals around you. Where we looked to tell this story was in our rare book collection because some of the earliest books we've got are books we call herbals, so books which outline in great detail the medicinal properties of plants and what to look for. But what's really interesting about these very early books, which go back to the 1500s, is that they're a really interesting mix of what we would think of as science and superstition, but which the writers just thought of as knowledge and wisdom. So it covers everything from... What's clearly based on a really close observation of patients and what happened to them when you either made them drink or or have the plant rubbed on them or inhaled or however they took it, through to belief systems around astrology, classical teachings, mythology and folklore. And a lot of it was based on a really deep belief that if a plant looked like a part of the body or an ailment, that was God's way of telling you this plant will heal it. So there are, are lots of plants which, you know, they may look like the heart or the lungs or the shape of the leaf looks like the heart or the lungs and therefore it must be that it would cure a heart or a lung ailment. Pulmonaria is a really great example of a plant which was decided that it had medicinal properties because of the way it looked. There was a feeling that the leaves, the spotted leaves, looked like a diseased lung. So because it looked like a diseased lung, there was a feeling that therefore it must cure. And it became known the common name is lungwort. As it turns out, the leaves actually produce a lot of a viscous, thick fluid when you mash them, which has a syrupy quality, which may have soothed the throat, which may have added to the idea that it would soothe a cough and heal a lung. You can really see a shift from the, the mid to late 1700s when the Enlightenment came and there was a more a scientific approach, a more evidence-based approach. And then the writers of the books that are from the, the mid 1700s onwards try and turn their back on superstition. They're quite sniffy about the books that went before them. But there's still some continuity there because it turns out that a lot of this ancient wisdom, a lot of which incidentally came from women, women who were known as wise women if you were well disposed towards them or witches if you weren't, a lot of the information herbals, the male writers would speak to women who collected plants and herbs. A lot of that wisdom, actually, it turns out, kind of was reasonably well grounded when the later scientific writers came along and tested them. One of the most famous medicinal plants that you'd see in pretty much every herb garden is rosemary. Now, rosemary in literature and in the herbals is associated with the mind and with memory. Parkinson, one of the most famous um, herbalists, wrote that it was good for the dullness of the mind. Rosemary has a chemical in it which acts upon the brain and acts upon levels of a chemical called acetylcholine. And that is, again, another Alzheimer's treatment. So that association with the mind was a sound one. 
What's really sad is that the wise women are completely anonymous. They were poor women, they were scratching a living, doing what was called simpling. Simpling meant to gather wild herbs and flowers and make medicines. They didn't have any social status, nobody bothered to collect their names pretty much. A couple of women made it as apothecaries. Probably the best known woman in our collection is Elizabeth Blackwell. And she's really interesting. She wrote a lovely book called A Curious Herbal, which she wrote and illustrated. And they're amazing illustrations of plants which were in the Chelsea Physic Garden. There are some examples where you really do not want to be listening to these guys because they're very wrong. A really big concern was epilepsy, which was known as the falling sickness. There was a belief which ran for centuries that if you hung the root of a peony around a child's neck, they wouldn't get epilepsy. There's no grounds for it at all. There are some really nice hints within the names of plants about what were past beliefs about their mistaken past beliefs about their curative properties. For instance, the dog rose, the reason we call the common name the dog rose is because there was a belief that the hips of that rose would cure rabies. No grounds for it at all, but it's stuck and you can see echoes of it in the common name. The reason we decided to do this exhibition was we have these amazing books, these herbals, which are all about medicine, and we just found it intriguing that this long association between the plants in the herbals are incredibly familiar garden plants now. And it's just really lovely to think that the reason that they first made it into our gardens and were first cultivated was this hidden story of their medicinal properties and the hope that people had that they would cure really important illnesses and yet today we just look at them as pretty plants and there's so much more to them. Fiona Davison. You can see the exhibition virtually by visiting the RHS website and remember if you want to be the first to see it on the 16th of July then all you need to do is to become a member. Now from historical texts to some more up-to-date studies. Erin Lovell Verinda is a writer of Plants for the People, a modern guide to plant medicine. I spoke to her about some surprising superhero health plants. Weeds. Weeds in general get a really bad rap. And I think if we think about weeds and some people may find this hard to wrap their heads around, but weeds are essentially plants growing in the wrong place at the wrong time. And Weeds hold a bounty of medicine. And also, I love to think about medicinal weeds as one of the most sustainable options for plant medicine. They grow so bountifully and so mightily. And there's so many examples from things like Plantago lanceolata, ribwort, and dandelion, Taraxacum officinale, and chickweed, wild pansy. Gosh, there's cleavers, blackberry. There's so many weeds that cross over into a medicinal weed space. I think dandelion is one of the most common weeds and you know, I think it's so plentiful and really grows in many areas of the world and UK and Europe. Dandelion is a really beneficial plant for our health. I mean, first of all, it's entirely edible. So it's an easy one to actually add into salads and add into cooking the leaves, flowers, roots. It's very, very good for the liver and the kidneys. So 
There's different parts of the dandelion that speak to different parts of the body, but the dandelion leaves have a little more of an affinity for the kidneys and the urinary tract. So another one that is classed as a weed is elderberry. So elderberry and elderflower, I think it's such a beautiful tree because they grow pretty mighty and strong and it's a really important medicinal plant for the immune system. Colds and flus and fevers and congestion and it tastes delicious. The elderberry itself tastes wonderful and has been a folk medicine remedy for eons. Really, it's an important plant in our sort of apothecary and dispensary. And once you can identify it really well, you can pick those elderberries and make elderberry syrup, which everybody loves and is quite delicious and elderflower cordials and things like that. Another one that I think is very common and people probably don't even notice it growing as a weed, but fennel. Fennel grows as a weed all over and it's a really important plant for the digestive system. It's a really nice calming plant to take and it's a medicinal weed. Another one that I think people really don't enjoy and I used to have it growing on my property. It's noxious here in Australia, but blackberry and it's such a spiky plant, but it is great for colds and flus and it's got a really strong antioxidant profile. So that's another one. There's plenty more, but that's a few. I have concerns around the sustainability aspect of herbalism. For me, I'm such an advocate in my writing and my teaching and working with people to think about weeds as a viable option for plant medicines because so many of these plants are deemed as weeds, but they are so abundant and they grow with such might and such little effort. And often they don't need to be cultivated at all. They just grow everywhere. So if people are going out and learning to identify and picking their own plants and making their own medicines, I really urge people to consider learning a bit more about medicinal weeds because they are so abundant and therefore really sustainable. With any plant medicines, it's really important to I believe, working with health professionals, especially if you're taking sort of therapeutic doses and you're working on a specific health condition, it's really important to be under the care of a registered herbalist, but also to be talking to your general practitioner. So your doctor, your GP, about what you're working on and what you're taking, because it is really important to be sure that, you know, you're doing, working with plant medicine under the watchful eyes of people that know what's happening. So always keep your general practitioner, your GP in the loop. And yeah, that's very, very important. Erin Lovell-Verinda there. Just a reminder, chemicals in plants can affect your body in all sorts of different ways. So please consult the NHS and your GP about any plant-based treatments. As James Wong touched on earlier, being in the garden can improve your mental as well as physical health. And Azichi Brewster is seeing firsthand how true this is. She's the RHS's first ever therapeutic gardener, meaning that she uses horticulture to support people through difficult times in their lives. Azichi is also working to create a brand new well-being garden at our RHS Bridgewater opening next year. 
She's here to tell us more. I really like planting spaces to have some element of intrigue for people, familiarity. So edibles are really important to me, smells are really important to me, to be able to pick and touch things. So what I'm aiming that the wellbeing garden will be very interactive, very activity-based, not a garden that you just go and sit and you look, you can walk onto the beds, you can meander. So it will be things like alpine strawberries, blueberries, some stuff in containers. Lots of herbs. I like to introduce people to the many benefits of herbs. Some uh, soporific plants that will aid you to sleep, like lemon verbena or lemon balm, even just the lavenders that we will have in there. Mints, different types of mints, Moroccan mint, chocolate mint, things that will make people instantly feel really good. So it's to get those feelings and then colours. You've got red currants, black currants, different blackberries are in there. Then you get on to your Mediterranean type herbs like sage and rosemary. And then we'll look at things like fennels. All those are usable plants. I like plants to be functional and usable. You're smelling them, you're valuing them from all different aspects. They're beneficial to your health, but they're texturally, they're also quite interesting. Gardening has always been a part of my life. I can quite well remember when it became something pretty significant for me is going back to the age of five. I was born here, but at a very, very early age, at the age of one, I went to live with my grandparents in a rural village in Nigeria whilst my parents were here studying and working. You had to go and fetch water, you had to go and fetch wood from the forests for fire, for cooking. You did everything outside other than when you went to bed at night. So I had this nine years of absolutely being rooted and connected to nature. It's in my fingers and it's in my bones and it's in my heart. Currently, the way we've been running the project and the referrals that we've had have mainly focused on people who've got multiple chronic health issues, ranging from depression to social anxiety to arthritis, to diabetes, to cardiovascular diseases. We are really very focused on enabling people. It's not a cure, but to manage those conditions a lot better by being in nature, by doing activities within nature. One of the things that I've noticed with gardening, if you use the gardening to be with people, it enables them to begin to connect with others. It's an activity you can do and socialise. And it breaks down barriers because in other situations, we would actually be stressed to be around other people if we're already suffering from depression or social anxiety or feeling physically challenged because our mobility is not so good. But once you start handling soil, looking at plants, touching plants, People start to tell stories, 
talk about their life, start to laugh, <laughs> start to joke. And then you're building a community who looks forward to seeing those same people again the following week, look forward to looking at the work that they've done. So you're making all these connections are actually quite good at distracting us from the usual head chat that we're in, from the usual locked-in emotions and feelings that we're going through. I can see the absolute change in the referral that we've had, the impact that gardening alone has had on them. It's been that window that's opened up the opportunities for the future for them. All of those things are what makes social prescribing actually a very good idea because these are the things the GP cannot be expected in a five minutes consultation to even begin to know how to help somebody with that. So physical health, emotional well-being, mental well-being are all things that gardening is not so much curing but has a preventative element into helping those conditions to be managed a lot better. And that's what we've learned from this project. I was lucky enough to visit Azichi at Bridgewater last year, and she is very dynamic. What a lot of great ideas she's had to involve people in gardening. For more on anything you've heard in today's programme, head to rhs.org.uk slash podcast. In next week's show, we'll be casting a light on a plant that's often thrown in the shady corners of your garden. The fern. I half expect a dinosaur to come running through and knock me over. Until then, it's goodbye from me, Guy Barter. I'm off to make a cup of herbal tea. Thanks for listening. Walking down the path in my garden, and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. 
Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.